0: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and I'm flying solo and I love flying solo, especially when it's to do with a classical episode. So with me today, I have Anthony Adolf, who's a genealogist, broadcaster and historian who's written a book currently about the classical era, amongst others, and whose previous books include Brutus of Troy. But he's here to talk to us about his new book, In Search of Aeneas, Classical Myth or Bronze Age Hero. Hi, Anthony.
1: Hello. Hello, Alina. Lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: I'm really excited. We haven't had a good classical episode in a while, and we all love a bit of class, especially myths. We love a good myth.
1: Well, this is, I'd say this is one of the best and most interesting and exciting and important myths of all of them.
0: Right. Tell us about it. First of all, some of our listeners probably haven't heard of this guy at all, because not everybody's in like depth dived into classics. But he is an interesting character. Tell us who he was.
1: No, I agree with you, because Aeneas is one of the people I think most people have sort of heard of him. And I think a lot of people think they ought to know who he is. But you're right. His story isn't that well known unless you've read one of the great ancient epic poems that features him. And he was one of, I'd say, one of the most significant and enduring heroes of of ancient Greek and later Roman mythology. Um, And his story comes in two very distinct halves, which is nice when you're writing a book. You can have part one and part two. So let's we can talk about part one first. Which is the Greek half. Um, and in this, Aeneas was born on Mount Ida, which is in the northwest of what is now Turkey, um, just over about over 3,000 years ago. And he was the love child of Anchises, who was the king of Dardania and the goddess of love, Venus, whom the Greeks called Aphrodite. And Aeneas grew up in Troy, as Homer tells us in his great epic poem, the Iliad, uh, in his brother-in-law's house. And in later versions of his story, he accompanied Paris on the embassy to Greece that led Paris to abscond with Helen, which is, of course, what started the whole Trojan War in the first place. And Aeneas was then one of the foremost heroic leaders of the Trojans in their 10-year war against the invading Greeks until the death of his cousin Hector at the hands of Achilles, which is where the Iliad ends. And at that point, Aeneas then became the leader of the Trojan forces. And throughout the Iliad, he's identified as someone who's really, very special indeed. And as the god Poseidon prophesies in the Iliad, of all the Trojan heroes, Aeneas was the one who was destined to survive. He's destined to survive, says Poseidon. And that line, which Homer gives us, sets up his myth for the utterly extraordinary story that was to follow.
0: Okay, we have some tidbits that we're going to be talking about but i love this idea that he is both roman and greek because it's the same thing as when we were talking with dr scott about hercules and heracles because he kept correcting me you know can't say can't say her if he's listening to this i really hope he's having a good old laugh but can't say hercules it's heracles 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 so disney you suck
1: well, it's difficult because the thing is, writing, writing about somebody who made the transition from uh, Greek mythology into Roman mythology does throw up all sorts of problems. Now, Aeneas actually kept his name. He's called Aeneas right the way through. Um, whereas some heroes, as you say, like Hercules or Heracles, um, changed their names. And of course, then the, the great nightmare you have with, uh, with the switchovers, of course, the Romans called almost all of the, or their gods, different names to the, Names the Greeks gave them. So you talk about Venus. Well, Venus was, um, Aeneas's mother in Roman history. But of course, in Greek history, she was Aphrodite. So constantly you have this switch over in my book. As it starts with the Greek myths, I've stuck to them. So right the way through my whole book, Aphrodite remains Aphrodite, the mother of Aeneas. Yes. But it is, it is tricky. It makes it interesting. And of course, one of the interesting things about Aeneas is that he was one of the heroes who crossed over from Greek mythology into Roman mythology, and in a very big and incredibly significant way, and we can talk about this later in the podcast um and and, and it, actually he is the hero who makes the made the transition from Greek to Roman mythology, and, and in many ways sort of kick started the whole of Roman history
0: and we hear about Heracles, but not him
1: yes, no I don't. Should I, talk, I can talk about this now if you want, then, yes. There's an absolutely good reason for this. In the second half, of, I'll, t- I'll tell you the second half of Aeneas' story now. The Roman, this is the Roman half, okay? And then we can come back and talk about why, why I'm sitting here talking about Aeneas and not Hercules, because there is a very good reason for that. Um, so the story of Aeneas carries on. In 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 the the main telling of, of his story in Roman history is through Virgil's great epic poem, The Aeneid. The Aeneid, the story of, Aeneid, of Aeneas. Which tells how Aeneas had great misgivings about the Trojan decision to allow the Greeks' wooden horse inside the walls. You remember the story of the Trojan horse? Tro, literally the Trojan horse. The Greeks presented a wooden horse to the Trojans uh, pretending it was a sign of peace saying they were going to um, give up the wall and go home. Um, And the Greek, uh, the Trojans said, right, let's bring this wonderful horse inside the walls. And a few of the Trojans, including Aeneas, said, no, this is a terrible idea. We mustn't do this. Um, But they were overruled. And so in came the wooden horse. And of course, inside were all the Greek warriors, who then, as night fell, slipped out and started the sack of Troy. And Aeneas was the one who led the final resistance to the massacre of the Trojans but in the end, when he built a fleet and sailed away west through the Mediterranean, he was opposed by the wrath of Zeus's wife Hera, who had a very substantial grudge against him. But he was guided by Zeus in obedience to fate, which decreed that Aeneas was destined to found a city in Italy. Now Aeneas then came to Carthage, and he had a torrid love affair with the city's queen Dido, hence the story of Dido and Aeneas. Until Aeneas was reminded of his destiny, which was to go to Italy. So he had dutifully abandoned Dido and sailed away whilst she, in grief, as we all know, killed herself. Then at Cume in Italy, Aeneas begged the sibyl who lived there to lead him down into Hades, where he conferred with his father Anchises, who had died on the journey. And in doing so, he discovered the true nature of our human souls and he received confirmation of his destiny. This is all what Virgil tells us in the Aeneid. He then landed near the mouth of the Tiber, where he was betrothed to Lavinia, who was the daughter of the local king of the Latins. And he made an alliance with another local king called Evander and his son Pallas. Um, he was then opposed by Turnus of the Rutulians, who was a local king, who had also been, been engaged to Lavinia um who provoked a war which ended when aeneas who was enraged by turnus's callous slaying of pallas killed turnus now then the roman histories that then go on beyond the pages of virgil and tell us how aeneas inherited latinus his realm uh, founded a city called lavinium after his wife which is just south of where rome is now and from lavinium eventually his descendants founded alba longa which is up in the hills above rome um Aeneas was then killed in another war with the Ritulians and in Ovid's Metamorphosis um, we read the final bit of the story which is how Aphrodite begged Zeus to allow her son Aeneas to become a god and bear him right up to Mount Olympus. And my book ends with this wonderful story of Aeneas who we've been following right the way through his career going up to Mount Olympus to become a god and there aren't many biographies where the character in the biography ends up as a god.
0: I love this. But I want to backtrack just a little bit, because we began with the Trojan War. Well, this question, anyway, we began with the Trojan War. And I want to talk a little Certainly. bit more in depth about that. Because he is there. He does oppose the plan to enter Troy. What else does he do? What other things does he participate in the Trojan War?
1: Well, um, in the, in, in Homer's, Homer's Iliad is an absolutely fantastic poem. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful poem. But a lot of it is actually about he, he picked up a spear and he killed him. Then he picked up a rock and he killed him. And there's an awful lot of this people say. So what does, what Aeneas does in Homer's Iliad is most of the time killing Greeks in different bits of combat. Um, and, um, I wouldn't say it gets tedious, but there is quite a lot of it, you know, and, um, and, and, but, but what, what do you get from, sorry, I'm sort of being rude about Homer there. Um, um, but, but what, what, what do you, what you learn from, what, what you learn from Homer's Iliad is, is that Aeneas was one of the foremost uh, of the leaders of the Trojans. His father was a member of. I'm a genealogist. You see, and my interest in all this started with genealogy. And his father Anchises was a, from a younger branch of the Trojan royal family, um, and they were kings of, a, of a, an area of the, of the Troads, south south of where Troy is, up in the mountains. Um, and so, so one of the significant scenes in the Iliad is when is when the Trojan king Priam summons. <laughs> All the sub kings, all his minions, to to come and help with the siege of Troy, and this this great uh, list of all the different uh, Trojan leaders who who appear before the walls of Troy with their armies, and and Aeneas comes second after the Trojans themselves, leading the men of Dardania down from the hills to help defend Troy. So um, immediately Homer positions Aeneas as one of the most important Trojans, and, and throughout the war, when he lists the main heroes of, of Troy, the Aristoi, he calls them, the, literally the original, the, the original aristocrats of the Trojans. Aeneas is always listed as one of, one of the most important. Um, so, and really that's what Aeneas does. And, and uh, there's a, there, there's a, there's a, a sort of section of the Iliad. In which we hear of, of a sort of certain amount of dissent uh, amongst the Trojan leaders over whether the war is a good, is a war which should be followed, whether it's a good idea to, to carry on fighting or whether to try and make peace with the, um, with the Greeks. And there's a sort of indication that Aeneas wasn't entirely happy with, with, um, with King Priam and his, 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 um, decision to carry on fighting the war come what may. Um, but that sort of disappears again and, and Aeneas then carries on being this sort of great hero. So that's pretty much all he does. He is very much a Greek hero. He's a big, strong, muscly chap who's good at wielding swords and throwing rocks around and all the rest of it. Um, the interesting part of Aeneas comes later, really, under Virgil and when the Romans get their hands on him. So, so yeah, he's very much sort of like Hercules. And indeed, often it actually compared to Hercules as this great sort of macho hero, but always with a bit of a brain. He's always, he can always tell he's one step ahead of most other people. He's an intelligent macho hero.
0: So one of the biggest debates among historians is, was Troy real? If it was real, where was it? Mm. And did the events of the Iliad actually take place or not? So historians have been biting each other's heads off for years over this. How does this idea play into your book? Where do you stand on all this?
1: I stand, I sit here, I sit. Uh, absolutely convinced that the, the argument that Troy was a, was a real place and that the Trojan War really took place. Um, it, it was real, that it's all real. Um, my reasons for thinking this are that <clears throat> I've followed the scholarly debate over this as it developed. In the, in the 18th century, they thought it was all completely made up. This poet, Homer, Homer, Homer had just come up with a story out of nowhere. And in the 19th century, <laughs> archaeologists who had actually read the Iliad and studied it, studied because the Iliad describes Troy in a reasonable amount of detail, and it describes the surroundings of Troy, where the war took place in a reasonable amount of detail. And Heinrich Schliemann, who is credited with discovering Troy, and his predecessor, Frank Calvert, who actually discovered it, (coughs) read the Iliad carefully, And went to the area of Turkey where it's known to, where the story is known to have taken place and, and used Homer as a guide to finding the spot, which was the most likely spot. And then when Schliemann dug, he found the city, which was, which they thought following Homer was there in the first place. So, so, so they used Homer to guide them to the, to the spot. And then as excavations have developed to the 19th century into, in the 20th century, and even in this, this, century, the more they find of Troy, the more it fits the poem, which suggests two things. First of all, it suggests it's the right place, um, because when you are in Troy, the whole Iliad makes sense. Um, And secondly, it suggests that Homer, although he wrote or composed the Iliad a few hundred years after after the Trojan War took place, it suggests strongly that he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just making up, he wasn't just writing a novel um, and making up cities and making up landscapes. (laughs) He knew the area of the Trode very well. And when he wrote about the the different spots and the different places and how the battles took place, he knew the area absolutely, 100% properly. Yeah, so there's that. So that proves that Homer knew where Troy was. As to the question of whether the Trojan War took place, Um, Well, I've discussed this in my book, and there's a whole chapter on it, um, and I've gone into more detail than I can go into using what's in my humble brain. Um, But as they've, suffice it to say, as as they've discovered and translated uh, cuneiform um, tablets um, from, not from Troy, where they'd never found any, unfortunately, but they found cuneiform tablets from elsewhere in in that area, in Anatolia. Um, They have found references to names, to place names, that are in Homer's Iliad, so there's certainly evidence that Homer understood the the layout of 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 Troy and and was writing about a real place but there's also actually quite good evidence that he was repeating uh, a genuine historical tradition rather than just making up the story of a war um, and evidence of that comes from Cuneiform tablets, which have been dug up in ancient Anatolia—not not actually in Troy itself—they never found any there. But there are cuneiform tablets elsewhere that refer to a lot of place names that appear in Homer's Iliad. Um, and because they are because they are cuneiform tablets from the time of the Trojan War, rather than from the time of Homer, that suggests that when Homer used the names which we now find in the cuneiform tablets he was repeating a, a tradition that went back as far as those tablets rather than just because recomp- if he because he he lived 300 years later so i and, and there are, there are, there are cities which he mentions um which which had fallen into ruin by the time homer was alive so and, and of course homer had no history books because history books didn't exist in those days um so so he was referring to cities that we now know from cuneiform tablets existed at the time of the Trojan War, but which he had no way of knowing didn't exist in his own day, if you see what I mean. So, so, so there are a lot of textual, a lot of contextual evidence to show that the, 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 Trojan War was, 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 was genuine and that Homer was repeating, uh, and was, was repeating an epic tradition that's been going on for about 300 years, telling this incredibly significant story. And it was significant for him. Because he, he lived in a Greek colony not far from where the Trojan War had taken place. So there was an epic tradition about the area where he lived. So it was, it, it was all, it was all, it was a personal thing for him. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't just, he wasn't writing a novel set in Never Neverland. He wasn't right. He wasn't Tolkien writing the Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> he was somebody in the place where it had taken place, repeating traditions that he had heard and he'd learned. Um, and, and scholars who are much more versed in, in, in the classics than I am have studied this in incredible detail and, and, and the detail they found is extraordinary. And the detail all points to, um, Homer writing about something that really happened rather than something which was made up, which of course then means, which then means that when he talks about Aeneas, he could well have been talking about a real person. That's what's exciting for me. Um, Because if if there's evidence from scholarship, if there's evidence from archaeology that Troy and the Trojan War existed, it was was real, um, then when Homer talks about Aeneas as one of the great leaders of the Trojans, there's actually a possibility that he was writing about a real person and recalling the stories of a a real man who once lived in Troy.
0: It's very frustrating. This argument between historians is just never-ending, And they always find something to argue. I mean, don't get me wrong, I always argue in my own field. But with Aeneas, it's just consistent and constant because it then, uh, you know, the argument goes was Troy real? Yes, no, maybe we have evidence, we don't have evidence, you know, how people interpret it. Then you also have his role throughout the Trojan War is also debated amongst historians. How do you tackle that into your book? Well, I don't think I. I don't, I, I'd, I'd say, I'd say that overall there is a scholarly
1: consensus that the Trojan War took place. I mean, the, 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 you know, the universities the so Cincinnati University and Tubigan universities are the ones who are leading the, um, the ongoing excavations there. And, 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 and overall the, 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 I'd say that scholar, the, 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 the scholarship, modern scholarship agrees on, I mean, there might be, few people out on a limb sort of saying it's sort all of nonsense, but you'd have to be a clever person to argue against the weight of evidence that exists, I'd say. And, and, and I'd say like, overall there, there is a, you know, there, there are these are, the prominent universities are, are, are funding these, um, these digs there and, 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 and they're, their, their view and opinion, which I'm happy to follow is, is, is that they're, they're dealing with, with, with real events and, 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 and studying Homer in the context of, of excavated Troy makes complete sense. There aren't any, <clears throat> there aren't any jarring inconsistencies. There, are, there aren't any major problems that need to be overcome, um, to, to make the theory work. It's, it's just there it is. You, you read the Iliad, you stand in, in Troy, which have you done that? Have you ever been there?
0: I haven't actually.
1: It's worth going. It's worth going because, I mean, you, you go and, and the, the poem, the, the Iliad makes sense. <laughs> it, it actually does make sense and it's fascinating. Um, and, and when you, when I study, and so I say, and then I, I, I came at all this, not, not as a classicist, not as an archaeologist, not as a historian even, but as a genealogist, I came to this because I was interested in Aeneas as an ancestor of 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 the founder of the british which i can come to later um, but i i came to aeneas and his his story and where and 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 i was interested in studying well okay according to homer where does he come from i so i sort of sliced into this whole debate on troy and the trojan war i sliced into it from the point of view of just of aeneas and just of getting to his origins so i was looking at this from a if you like a different angle to Probably the way most people come into it, and what I found, and what I've reported in my book, is that is that actually the more you look into Aeneas and his origins in the context of that little corner of of Turkey where where they're supposed to have come from, the more the story does make sense, and in, and indeed all of Aeneas' story makes sense in the context of the geography of that area, and in the book I show you photographs of of places I've been where he, he could have been he could very well have been born um and they make complete sense from you know look at, from looking at the looking at the the, the 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 story overall so by coming at it from a different angle, I'm certainly um convinced by all the arguments that that we're dealing with at that stage a real
0: person as of curiosity, where did you travel to when it comes specifically traveled, to the Trojan War?
1: Yeah. Well, I traveled to, to Troy. Um, you, you get a flight to, um, to Izmir. <laughs> um, you hire a car, you drive for a couple of hours and you get up to the fur, the furthest northwestern point of Turkey, um, where the Dardanelles flow out into the, into the Mediterranean. And there's this corner of land and it gets ever smaller and smaller. And you get to the end of the peninsula. Um, and, and there, well, it's a peninsula. It's a core. Corner, um, of, 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 Turkey. Um, and there is, you, you, drive along a sort of dirt, not quite a dirt track. They, um, paved it now. Um, and you go along and you, 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 um, you get to a, a replica, the replica of the wooden horse that was in the Troy movie that was on about 15 years ago, and um, which they put up. Um, and then you go through the turnstiles and then there you find this great ruined city, a beautiful ruined city that's been excavated again and again over, over the last, um, 150 years um and and what you see there are ruins from all sorts of different historical periods right the way through from almost the late neolithic right the way through um through aeneas's time up to the time of the greeks and then the romans had a city there as well so you see a very sort of complex complex set of archaeological remains that take a long time takes a long time to get your head around which what you're looking at Um, which level is, which level is which, and which level belonged to the time of Aeneas. But there was incredibly uh, good, um, so there's incredible walls that have survived very, very well. It slopes slightly inwards and they're quite tall and they are from Aeneas's time. And so there's certain parts of Troy where you can sort of actually think, yeah, that was actually that he knew he saw those walls. Those are the walls that he was, (laughs) that were defending the Trojans against the Greeks. It's an extraordinary place.
0: Question: The story then moves on to. So I don't want to give. I don't want to give my my uh, the answer away in what I'm about to say, which rhymes, funny enough, oddly enough, there. But Cressida. Yes. She comes into this story. When, what, why, and how? Why are you
1: interested in Cressida? Me. Yes. Oh no, sorry. You'll have to edit that out because it wasn't your. No,
0: question, no, right? no, no. It is no. So, mm. w- was she real? Or was she not? That's what I'm interested in. I didn't want to give it all away in a in a sentence.
1: Yes. So you want to know about this business of Aeneas with Cressida? Well, I called one of the chapters Aeneas and Cressida. Um. Um, she's actually of virtually no consequence to the story whatsoever. Um, she actually comes from, there are various sort of romances and little extra stories that, that spun off, um, Homer's tale of Troy, um, during the Middle Ages. And one of them was the story of this girl, Cressida, who is, um, a, uh, a Trojan girl. Um, who is, um, engaged to one of King Priam's sons called Troilus. Um, and then Shakespeare picked up on the story <clears throat> and wrote a not particularly good play called Troilus and Cressida, um, which, um, is set simply during the course of the Trojan War. And it's not entirely clear at what point it's just during the war. Um, and, um, and Aeneas appears in Shakespeare's play as a sort of supporting character in in, 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 in the story. Um, and I put it in to my book because this is, my book is a biography of the mythological character Aeneas. And there are some principal sources for his story, mainly Homer's Iliad and then later Virgil's Aeneid. But there are also a lot of other ancient writers and ancient historians and later writers and historians who have written about Aeneas and who have added to his story. And because he's a mythological, primarily a mythological character, it's not the biographer's business to pick one or two of the stories and say, right, these are the main ones and we're going to ignore the rest. It's the biographer's business to report all the different stories. And of course, that can be quite complicated sometimes because in some versions of Aeneas's myth, he, he, was, he was cap I mean, he, he, he got it. He made it through the Trojan War, but in some versions, he was then captured, became a slave. And died a slave, and in other in other versions he collaborated with the Greeks and was allowed to remain in Troy and even become king there um and never made it to Italy at all um so so but it's the biographer's job to report all these different stories um and and they maybe indicate where you know which are important and which aren't um so this this business of him Aeneas appearing in in a Shakespeare play. I just put in because it, it belongs, it belongs in his story. Um, he was a supporting character. Um, he comes across as, again, a quite an intelligent, clever, courtly sort of character. Um, there's a rather good, uh, there's a good little, uh, scene in it where he's, um, sent into the, um, into the Greek camp to negotiate with King Agamemnon. And when Aeneas arrives in the Greek camp, he goes up to this Greek and he says, excuse me, I'm looking for, um, King Agamemnon. Um, can you tell me how to recognize him? The Greeks says well you know why why do you you know why do you want to know and Aeneas says well I've been sent here as a diplomat so when I meet King Agamemnon I'm going to flatter him I'm going to tell him you know what a magnificent person he is how fantastic he looks I'm going to tell him how well you know how well dressed he is and I'm going to tell him how everyone admires him you know I'm going to lay it on with an absolute trowel you know and of course then the Greek sort of sniggers a bit and he says well actually I'm Agamemnon um and Aeneas, Shakespeare's Aeneas just takes this completely in his stride. And he says, well, in that case, if you're King Agamemnon, then I'm going to start praising you. And he begins and he praises him. And he praises him so much that Agamemnon says, oh, why didn't you come to supper? Um, they get on terribly well, which is not, of course, the way it happens in Homer's Iliad. Um, so it's, it's just a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, almost a silly aside, but it's, par, it's part of the, Overall canon, if you like, if you could use that word of all the different stories of Aeneas that make him into an interesting and well-rounded character. Who was Cressida? A different story,
0: <laughs> not as important as the rest of it. Basically, is the bottom line.
1: Not, not from, not when you're writing a biography of Aeneas. No, you, you could, you, you yourself, you could write a biography of Cressida. I'm sure there are all sorts of interesting things you could find out.
0: Probably, but I think the 20th century world might be very angry if I decide to. Very of course, except for my university lecturers. They would love it. They would absolutely love for me to go on to,
1: Well, of course. I mean, no, I mean, there's a lot to say. I mean, I mean, you could actually, you could actually make a very interesting story because, in fact, her, she, it's, it's a story of a woman who was simply used as a pawn in a man's game. She was uh, the Greeks, the, the Trojans handed her over. They wanted one of their Trojan heroes back who'd been captured by the Greeks. So they sent a woman. They said, look, have this. Pretty girl, you know you can have her instead, as long as you send back our important Greek soldier. So, um, and the and then she once she gets to the Greek camp, actually then starts a relationship with one of the Greeks, and of course then the Trojans are absolutely scandalised. Yeah, she, you know, this is terrible. <clears throat> so actually, the way she's treated is utterly appalling. And actually, you you could use that as the as the as a theme for actually probably a very good book. And there are lots of there are different versions of her story, and I'm sure there's a lot to be um, and lots a lot to be said. But she's not a major part of this story that we're talking about today.
0: So we're going to move on. Which I hate use that line, but I've just used that line because we've gone from the Greek, and now we're stepping over the line to the Roman period.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes.
0: What does he do next in the mythology?
1: Well, I mean the next part of his once he once Aeneas survived the. Survived the Trojan War and the fall of Troy as prophesied by Poseidon. He, as I told you earlier, he, he made, he made a journey across the Mediterranean, all sorts of different adventures on the way and eventually landed in Italy and laid, laid the foundations of all Roman civilization. That's the, the Roman version of the story. Um, and you asked me earlier about this business of Hercules and Aeneas. And why, why are we talking about Aeneas and not Hercules? Um, and uh, from this point of view, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, because, um, it, it, the most important thing about Aeneas from the Roman point of view was that he was claimed as ancestor by Julius Caesar. Actually, a few, it had been, he'd been claimed as an ancestor a few generations prior to Julius Caesar's time. Um, and post. And there are reasons, yeah. And there are reasons why, why they, which I can go into another time. Um, Julius Caesar grew up with a family tradition, which was probably only a few generations old. But believe me, as a genealogist, I see how quickly little ideas uh, solidify into absolute solid facts in families. You know, your 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 great grandfather was um, um, he was a porter at, at the um, you know at, at the Ritz Hotel in London, and within a generation. The family story can say, "Well, you know, he was a very important figure at the Ritz Hotel in London," and then the grandchildren be saying, "Well, I remember Granny saying that my, our, gran, you know, that our ancestor owned the Ritz Hotel in London," and and you constantly see these stories become being picked up and um, um becoming absolute, absolutely cherished family. Uh, truths which cannot be challenged. And if you do challenge them, you're, you're in terrible trouble. And so in the Caesar, in the, in the Julian family, the family of Julian's, Julius Caesar, the belief was that Aeneas was the ancestor and that was it. Oh, and by the way, Aeneas was the son as of Aphrodite. So if you're descended from Aeneas, you're also descended from one of the greatest of the great goddesses on Mount Olympus. So good family story. And, and, and I argued in the book, that when we hear about julius caesar uh, when we hear about the things he did the extraordinary things he did how he he took a, a relatively small army into into gaul and conquered systematically conquered the whole of france and then crossed the english channel and actually had the audacity to invade england okay he failed he 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 he, he, he Came here to Britain and then he, he he left pretty rapidly. But he had the nerve to do it at all. He is also, of course, Caesar who crossed the Rubicon, who led his army across the Rubicon, which you were not allowed to do. Um, marched into the into Rome, the city that effectively employed him as a general and took it over and became its dictator. He did extraordinary things, and you think how on earth, how on earth could somebody have the nerve? To do these things, how, how could somebody think of doing these things? Think of doing it, and then and then execute them. And how did he persuade soldiers to follow him? And the answer is, he was using mythology. He was using mythology, the mythology of his own family, that he was the descendant of Aeneas and the descendant of Aphrodite, to give himself that extraordinary degree of self-confidence. And also, every time he succeeded, of course, he said, well, of course, this is because I'm the descendant of Aeneas and Aphrodite. And his soldiers, I think, ended up actually believing him. I've actually got on my desk here somewhere, hidden amongst the papers, one of his coins that he minted. And on one side of the coin is a picture of, of Aeneas, Aeneas himself carrying his father. And on the other side of the coin is his Aeneas' his mother Aphrodite and he used these coins to pay his soldiers and effectively to say look this is absolutely who I am, I'm am the descendant of a goddess that's why you should follow me and risk your lives invading these different countries and that's how it worked and so it, it, Rome became instilled with this extraordinary idea that, 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 that the descendant of Aphrodite was there amongst them leading them um, and this belief was, was inherited by his nef- his great nephew was also his adopted son who was octavian and after caesar's death he was um he was um murdered wasn't he um after caesar's death there was a, a effectively a civil war amongst amongst the, the different contenders for who was going to be the next roman dictator and octavian the great nephew and adopted son was one of the contenders one of the other ones was mark Antony. And because the Caesars said they were descended from Aphrodite, um, Mark Antony's family had a story that they were descended from Hercules. And the other contender was Pompey, who either had a tradition or quickly invented one that he was descended from Neptune or Poseidon. Um, so all the, all three contend, all of the three contenders as to who, who was going to rule Rome had a different, massively important classical figure, but they were God, all three cases, they were Gods behind them. Um, and at the Battle of Actium, which is off the western coast of Greece, um, the last two men standing, uh, Octavian and Mark Antony, with Cleopatra by his side, came head to head in this great naval battle. Um, and if Mark Antony had won the Battle of Actium, Then there would be no, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Aeneas because he would be a pretty irrelevant character in, in history. And we wouldn't be talking about Virgil's Aeneid because Virgil's Aeneid was only written after Octavian had won his victory and he commissioned Virgil to write about Aeneas. If Mark Antony had won, we might very well have a poem by Virgil about Hercules and, and the Roman instead of Roman. Treating Aeneas and Aphrodite as their great figureheads, we would have we'd be talking probably about great Roman epics and beliefs in Hercules. Now Hercules was revered in Rome; he was very well known in Rome, um, but he wasn't the pivotal figure. And the reason why Aeneas and his mother Aphrodite became the pivotal figures in Rome and in Roman literature, particularly in Virgil's Aeneid, Aeneid is because it was Octavian who became the Emperor Augustus, who won the battle became the ruler of Rome and thus his ancestor was the one who set the agenda.
0: Let's stick with Virgil's uh, poem, because, as you said, he writes pretty much the history of Aeneas. And how does he actually turn him into a hero? I know that Octavian won the war, but how does Virgil use this piece of writing to turn him into this Epic hero of well,
1: Roman hero, more specifically. Well, virtue Homer's Homer's Aeneas, as I said, was was a pretty sort of standard Greek muscle bound Greek hero who was good at fighting, um, but always with a sort of the suggestion that he was one of the cleverest as well. There was a certain sense that he was a, an intelligent man and a diplomat. Um, And and, and the initial idea, which Virgil and we don't know exactly how it worked, but Virgil and Augustus clearly agreed that, that there should be a great epic poem to glorify Augustus. Um, and, and one of the ideas, I think, originally was actually to write a poem about Augustus winning the Battle of Actium. But I think they both realized that there were some problems with that because, because writing about the, the, the emperor himself would be quite difficult. Um, and indeed anyone who'd been at the Battle of Actium knew that there was a quite an element of luck involved in that Augustus winning. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't matter, the, the gods sort of willing it. It was more just the fact that Mark Antony and Cleopatra made some terrible mistakes. Um, so, so the, the decision they made in the end was to write a, a, an epic poem about Augustus's ancestor. And then in the, in the course of the poem, just throw in some scenes which were looking ahead to Augustus and making it absolutely clear that Augustus was the heir and inheritor of, of great Aeneas. and, and, and Virgil turned Homer's muscle-bound Greek hero into really a sort of paragon of Roman, of everything a Roman should be. Um, certainly a great, a great warrior, no, no doubt about that, but also much more of a statesman, somebody who was, um, there's a wonderful line when, Aeneas went down into, into, into Hades, into Hades to, to meet his father. Um, his father, Anchises, says to him, and this is Virgil's idea of what, what Romans were supposed to be. He's, Anchides says, leave it to other people, particularly the Greeks. Leave it to other people to make beautiful statues. Leave it to other races to write music and write you know, write things like that. You, Roman, he says, you, your, your job is to impose the rule of law upon the world. He said to bring down the humble and and sorry, that so, i got it completely wrong. To bring down the mighty, <coughs> bring down the mighty and bring on and and bring up the humble. Um Imposing the rule of, rule of law, um, it, it probably uh, more a Roman aspiration than a reality. But some, um, but but he, he turned he turned Aeneas into into somebody who who whose role in in life was was to lay the foundations for the Roman Empire, which would would impose the rule of rule of law, impose peace a, across the world. Um, and also he turned Virgil he turned Virgil turned Aeneas into into a character who was much more of a pious character than, than, um, than he had been under home, um, um, And he, he emphasized the, the piety of Aeneas. Um, when Aeneas left Troy, he he didn't take with him his gold, he didn't take with him his wine, he took with him his crippled father, the gods of Troy, the household gods, and his son. Um, He took with him the things which were most important, as it were, spiritually rather than putting his own um, own, own, um, interests first. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Um, yes, yeah, so, so under Virgil, Aeneas becomes much more of a sort of pious and more of a sort of noble character. Um, and the sort of person who Virgil wanted the Romans to to be or to aspire to, yes. Yeah.
0: You've mentioned this very previously. I can't remember some point in the conversation that you believed Aeneas possibly existed.
1: Yes. No, I think so. I think if, 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 if Homer's story of Troy is based in reality and it was something which Homer remembered, um, and if archaeology can prove so much that, that what Homer wrote about uh, could, could very well have existed, um, then yes, the original Aeneas, um, could very well have been a real person, a real king ruling in a very small part of them in the mountains south of Troy, just as, just as Homer says. Um, and, and in my book, I've, I've, I followed the leads of others, um, and found a tiny little ruined city up in the mountains, um, which could very, very well be the place where uh, the real Aeneas was born. And I've also managed to explain to a large extent, I think, in the book, how the story that somebody could be the son of a goddess could even have come about in, 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 in real life. Um, and so, yes, I think the original Homeric Aeneas was a real person. I, I'd also like to be absolutely clear that, 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 that all, the whole Roman section, the whole of the Roman part of Aeneas's story, as told by Virgil and as told indeed by many other Roman historians, Is absolute invention. There used to be, and I think maybe still are a few uh, writers who were determined that the, the, the story of Aeneas sailing across the Mediterranean to found civilization in Italy was based in reality. And I'm absolutely convinced that that's not the case. The Romans were perfectly capable of civilizing themselves uh, themselves. And indeed they had Greek there were plenty of Greek merchants going and spreading Greek um Greek civilization there anyway. Um you don't you don't need Aeneas to explain all that. Um so so the 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 large part of Aeneas' myth is 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 absolutely myth. And it was myth and it was myth that was created. It wasn't just, it wasn't just myth that sort of rose, arose through people sitting around fires, telling each other stories. It was mythology that rose for very specific reasons. And the specific reasons were the Romans need to root themselves in the classical world of the Greeks. Because Rome, a couple of hundred years before the time of Julius Caesar, was very much a, a sort of cultural backwater. It was just one of many Iron Age. It was an Iron Age town and one of many scattered around the Mediterranean. I and mean, when they looked at the Greek Greek, Greek culture and Greek civilization, they saw that the Greeks had these great founding heroes and these wonderful characters who are related to the Olympian gods. Um, and they thought, gosh, you know, we need, we need something like this. Um, and initially, they didn't come up with Aeneas at all. They came up with, um, um well, we don't know. Uh, well, Odysseus, one of the other characters in the Iliad, um, he was... Um, they played with him the idea that he that Rome had been founded by Odysseus. Um, they were very interested in the twins, Pollux and Castor, the, the brothers of 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 Helen of Troy. And and they might have toyed with the idea of him being a founding ancestor. And and then at some point they picked up on the idea of Aeneas being their founder, the ancestor of Romulus, the man who actually founded Rome, but the idea of all of Latin civilization coming from Aeneas. Um, was picked up at some point. Um, and in my book, I've argued that actually originally it wasn't them laying claim to Aeneas because he was a great hero. Um, because he wasn't an issue. The the Greek Aeneas wasn't a great hero because he, he was a man who's, who, who tried to defend his city from the Greeks, but failed. He's a man who stood and watched his city burn to the ground. Um, he's not, he's not actually an obvious choice for a founding hero at all. Um and in my book I've argued that originally it, being descended from Aeneas was actually an insult, which the Greeks flung at the Romans, and they said, you know, you're your descendants of your descendants of Aeneas, you know, you're descendants of Trojans, as in we are better than you. And this insult happened to be flung by um, Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was invading southern Italy at the time, King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who claimed to be a descendant of Achilles, who was the great great Greek hero of the Trojan War. And Pyrrhus of Epirus actually made a comment about the fact that he was fighting the descendants of Trojans and had every intention of winning a second Trojan war. Now, you know the phrase, uh, the, Pyrrhic, the, Pyrrhic, the Pyrrhic victory. Um, the Pyrrhic victory was the fact that Pyrrhus of Epirus fought a battle against the Romans, which he won, but he won it at such a huge cost in men and um and and arms and elephants indeed war elephants he he lost so much during this battle that he won that he had to then leave italy and go back to greece so effectively although he won the battle he lost the war and off he went and so and once he'd gone the romans said well if that man was claiming to be a, a descendant of achilles fighting a second trojan war against the trojans well guess what we won." We won the Trojan War this time, and that was the point where they picked up on this this insult that they were supposed to be descendants of Trojans, and said, "Well, actually, yes, we are." And they, and through that, they found that they had a incredibly strong. They suddenly had this marvelous mythological connection to the uh, to, to to Greek mythology, to the great great world of Greek mythology, and they said, "Yes, we are the new Trojans." And Aeneas is our ancestor, and we're very proud of it. And that's how it all started. And and once Rome then. Began to rise once the power of Rome really began to rise. You see other parts of the classical world suddenly thinking, well, if the Trojan, if it's in our interest to also lay claim to the Trojan myth. So in Sicily, there are people in Sicily who suddenly say, well, actually, yeah, we might have a Trojan ancestor as well. And you see this all over the Mediterranean. Suddenly people say, yes, we're Trojans as well. And, and, and d- 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 the diplomacy with the diplomacy of the Mediterranean. The train. It suddenly became based on are you are you descended from trojans or aren't you um, so this myth which was a myth was also a very real part of the politics of the day and it became very important as to whether you were did did your ancestors side with the greeks or did they side with the trojans and and if you wanted to carry favor with the trojans, with the romans you made sure that you had ancestors who were who had been pro trojan and so so it was, a, it was a myth that was a a living myth. And it was part of the politics of, of, of the Mediterranean for a very long time.
0: Anthony, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've had such a great time talking about ancient history. It's been a really, really long time since I've had the chance to. Can you just remind the name remind our listeners the name of your book?
1: My book is called In Search of Aeneas, and the subtitle is Classical Myth or Bronze Age Hero. Which it's published by by amberly. And thank you. Yes, I, I, feel, I feel sometimes with these answers, one goes on a little and isn't particularly clear. But I'd like to say that the book I've written is very clear because I had the time to write it properly and to edit it. And so the answers to all these questions, which I've been trying to answer today rather badly, are much better explained in my book, which I hope you'll enjoy
0: fabulous we will get a copy of your book into our bookshop and which means basically that you get a slice we get a slice and we help local bookshops and we don't allow the shop with the letter a to take all the money and build their rocket and chris always does this even better than i do i still can't do yes, this i know i know yes yeah, that's, that's what i mean
1: you see it's when you you have something clear in your head, and she's quite difficult. I, I'm saying this in a podcast, but it's sometimes quite difficult to sort of come out with a good, crisp, clear sentence. Whereas if you sit and write it, it that's why I'm a writer. You see, um, <laughs> <laughs> was working by crystal. <laughs> <But> yes, <you're laughs> does the right.
0: ending? does the I'm ending, and, your... and I and I kind of don't. But it's been great having you on. Thank you so much.
1: I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed talking about. It.
0: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book